Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world giving, given back to us. I'm here in Taylorsville, Utah, which is basically Salt Lake City, and I'm here at Prince of Peace Lutheran Church. Um, and I have both pastors from Prince of Peace here, um, John Mitchell and Tyler Peel, and we're here today to talk about um, creating a new hymnal. Uh, our synod, Wisconsin Lutheran Synod, is in the middle towards the end of um, creating a new hymnal that's going to be put out pretty pretty shortly. And so both of these men um, have been working on that um, over the vast many years, past many years. How many years have you guys been working on it? Probably about five or a little little over five, I would say. All right. And so we're going to talk about the process of that and uh, what are the cool things about that? What are the challenges about creating a new hymnal? Um, so here's Tyler Peel. Why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself, Tyler. Hi, I'm Tyler. Big fan of the show. Glad to be back with you. I'm pa- one of the pastors at Prince of Peace here in Salt Lake City. Been here for about a year and a half. Before that, I was a pastor in Nebraska. Um, classmate of Mike and Wade. And that's it. That's good enough. John, why don't you introduce yourself and uh, where you've served or anything else about you? Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Jonathan Mitchell, um, serving here at Prince of Peace since 2005, so 13 going on 14 years. Uh, prior to that, served at St. Peter in Modesto, California, in the, the Central Valley of California. Um, and uh, yeah, we in, love living and serving here in Utah um, and uh, enjoyed working on the hymnal project the last several years too. And I'm looking out the window um, and I can see snow-capped mountains. It's very, very beautiful and nice here in Salt Lake. Um, so I'm going to read our disclaimer and then we'll come back for a free-for-all. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. Hello, we're back for our free-for-all, and since we're going to be talking about hymnals, liturgical kind of stuff, I thought we would go around and each of us um, who are have served as pastors in the past, uh, we would talk about our favorite season in the church year. And I'll go first and then let these guys um, weigh in in a little bit. I think Epiphany is kind of an underrated um, season. Epiphany is a season after Christmas, but before Lent, and I just like preaching on those texts, especially like the wedding at Cana, um, sometimes Jesus preaching in Nazareth, uh, some of those early miracles kind of kind of thing. And I like that because the idea of here's an unveiling, an epiphany of who Jesus is, true man, true God. And it's a little bit different than the Pentecost season. The epiphany season and the Pentecost season are a little bit different, um, but they're both what we call ordinary times. 
Um, and so they're not festivals like Easter or Christmas. But Epiphany always, for me anyway, had a kind of a different feel to it. You start off with the baptism of our Lord, and then in our Lutheran tradition, uh, ending with the transfiguration of our Lord, kind of bookends there um, between the Christmas and then the Lenten season. So even though it's in the Midwest where I served, it was cold and it was uh, snowy and you didn't even know how many people would show up on a Sunday and uh, everybody's kind of, uh, you know, hasn't seen the sun in months. I still really appreciated church in, in the Epiphany season. I always thought that was kind of an underrated season. So, uh, Tyler, what's your favorite favorite season of the church here? Epiphany's hard to beat. Um but I think maybe something I love is just that the seasons, the church year, there's there's always another one coming. So um, it's exciting to, yeah, by Epiphany five that's coming up, you're you're ready to start getting into Lent or at the end of a long um, non-festival semester, you start getting excited for Advent to come along. Um, but my favorite season is you know kind of the weeks before right before easter and after easter um for the joy of it and and the the, some symbolism that easily works into the the church and worship in those days that just kind of takes everything up a notch yeah it's always i think it was always fun as a pastor when you had a special day um Good Friday, Monday, Thursday, Transfiguration of Our Lord, Easter Sunday, where you could do something a little bit different, whether it be like a farewell to Alleluia or uh, a processional or even the fact that you have Easter lilies or something, something that's different where you can teach, um, okay, here's a little bit of symbolism here, but uh, just something different also, I think, um, people's attention's a little bit, you know, it's a little bit more, uh, they're more attuned to what's going on and so I always appreciated. I always look forward to no matter what it was that we could do something different. I think that's what you're getting at yeah. with the switches of the season, and maybe that's maybe that's the right answer. And now that I look back, like whenever there was a new season, that was my yeah. favorite season yeah, right. <laughs> uh, because you got to switch the colors, you got to switch gears a little bit, and uh, there's always some. Uh, some liturgical thing that was going to change if you're, you know, into that stuff. And so, I don't know, it was always kind of fun and got me a little bit more excited. John, what's your favorite church season as a pastor? Uh, yeah, they're, they all have their own unique features and uh, cool things about them. I'm, I'm going to say Lent, um, maybe because I remember that at, when I was younger, kind of really having an impression on me, and maybe it was uh, midweek services or Lenten hymns, things like that, but I just remember the clear, really strong uh, law gospel um, emphases during that season, Um, sin, grace, uh, just so clearly outlined in some of the the accounts we hear during that time of the year. And then, of course, the passion history, too, if that's your custom to, to read that at the midweek services spending a little time with that. Then as I got older, I came to appreciate more and more the Sundays in Lent, which I guess are not technically part of the season of Lent. Um, but the Sundays in Lent have kind of this unusual character of, they're not exactly Passion Sundays, but it's Jesus moving toward the Passion. And so you really see that 
the resolute attitude of Jesus moving closer and closer to Jerusalem and standing up against the devil and and death. You know, you get like the Lazarus account is traditionally part of the Lenten season or one of the Sundays in Lent, things like that. So I just like that kind of that clear uh, focus on Christ. He's going to the cross for us. Uh, just really stands out in the Lenten season. Yeah, I think I, if I look past, you know, when I before I was a pastor, just being, you know, a kid and Lent, those are the things that I remember from church or those Lenten services or the season of Lent. And I always noticed that people came back to church a little bit more in Lent, even besides all the, you know, if it's a later, you know, an uh, earlier Easter or a later Easter, either way, I suppose that spring's coming. And so there's every reason to, you know, not go to church twice during the week, but people are attracted to, to that Lenten season. Um, for some reason, maybe it's that clear gospel message, you know, what you're going to get, it's going through the story again. And just that, just the, the, seasons of the year are just so important because that's how we are people of time and space and and we we have a an ebb and flow during our year whether you look at it in a secular calendar you know you go from summer then to school starts and then you have the holiday season and and we like that we feel at home there and uh it's good then to have a strict um not strict about the right word but a very sharp contrast between lent and easter or epiphany and lent or advent and christmas or whatever i think people are attracted to that even if they aren't maybe liturgically minded and and i mean how many people have we met that have you know grew up in the church but maybe faded away and then came back and really had those memories of Easter or Christmas or Lent. And uh, there was something there that stuck with them. It wasn't just the sermon. It was the whole surroundings, the whole feel of it, what they what they saw and maybe even smell, you know, the Easter lilies. Those things are, are embedded into um, not just our minds, but our souls, I think. So, yeah, all good answers, I think. So anything else you guys want to say in your – what's your second favorite? <laughs> I would go Advent. I really like – I like Advent. Yeah. That's, I mean, that is definitely, it's, it's, it's a complicated one because you're looking forward to Jesus, his first coming, but you're also looking forward to, um, um, his second coming and, uh, the anticipation of Christmas and the sharp contrast to say, okay, Advent in church is just a little bit different than the Christmas season out in the world. And you don't have to, you don't have to be anti Santa Claus to, to make that point. And, uh, really that sharp contrast is, is fun to preach on. What what do you, what's your second favorite, Tyler? Probably Epiphany. I mean, I liked everything you were saying at the beginning. Uh, Christmas doesn't have quite the drop-off that it feels like after Easter, mm-hmm. right? But, um, I'm excited to get into Epiphany and some of those cool miracles that John was talking about before. So, mm-hmm. John, what would you, what's your second favorite? I might go with Advent also. Um, I've come to appreciate that it's i mean it's a weird season in that um it's kind of countercultural because i think our culture says you know christmas starts the day after thanksgiving or the or you know before that the displays start going up in the stores and so i've kind of i don't know i feel a little rebellious during advent you hear john the baptist and he's bringing uh this message of repentance and God's judgment. Um, but at the same time, there's those notes of joy in the season too, that, 
you know, something, something awesome is coming or, you know, the fulfillment, fulfillment of the ages is, um, you know, about to take place. And so, uh, it's kind of that unusual, the paradox there, the repentance, the joy, but, um, yeah, I kind of, it, I've really come to appreciate that. Yeah. I always kind of thought that for me, Advent was the more, was the most passionate season, at least for my preaching, because you're talking big things. You're talking eschatology, you're talking incarnation, you're talking, um, we're not doing very well down here. We need Jesus. And so those are bigger themes that I think were, um, for me, they were fun to preach on. Um, and instead of, something very particular, which can be fun to preach on too, but those bigger themes right there are so clear in Advent. Um, and they're, they're, they're epic, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're historical, they're, um, in time and space and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's pretty cool stuff. We all like Easter. I like Easter. Easter. I'm, I'm pro Easter. Yeah. <laughs> We're all yeah. pro Easter. Although I, I have mentioned this before that Easter season was tough for me to preach on. Um, Easter Sunday, obviously great. Easter two, doubting Thomas, fantastic. Although it's the low Sunday in yeah. the history of the church, right? Nobody shows up. Right, right. Yeah, the two the two church services, if you're listening out there, that you have skipped that shouldn't skip, are um, Ascension Day and the uh, Sunday after Easter. Those ones are great, and and people don't come, <laughs> and they should. But and of course, you know, there's there's Good Shepherd some Sunday, which is great. But man, I always had a hard time preaching on the rest the other Sundays in Easter. I mean, what you empty it all out on Easter Sunday and then you feel like you're repeating yourself. And, um, I think I mentioned this before, but, um, I heard the advice that go read the Easter hymns and, uh, you'll, you'll be, um, you'll be spurred on in your preaching because of that. And that was always very helpful to me to, to then think a little bit deeper about the resurrection, get a, get a poet's perspective on this. And that was helpful too. But, uh, shamefully to say that the Easter season was my least favorite (laughs) to preach on after, after Easter too. It seemed like the, the one year when I was preaching that would, would kind of put forth the gifts of Easter. Now there's, you know, regate, you can pray and you had one, um, you can sing the the various doors that are open because Christ is out of the tomb. Yeah, and, I think I think there's something there was it was a me problem, not a yeah. <laughs> not a not a percipe problem. But that but I, I get it and that's what I kind of meant before when I said it feels like Easter is kind of the it's so it's such a climax that you fall off the other end pretty quickly. And and we 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 John you kind of mentioned this that we we start our Christmas celebration and then we do Christmas in our secular world when in the church year it's more like you celebrate the the holiday first, and then there's the season. Then there's the and the, and that's countercultural, um, and you have to fight against that. And and then Easter plays in that too. You got to think, okay, Easter starts now, and then it's an Easter season. And uh, it's hard for us to kind of because we're already on to well, summer's around the corner, you know, naturally thinking that, and you have the end of the school year kind of stuff, and uh, you should be ramped up for the Easter season as much as uh, Easter Sunday. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Any last thoughts? Well, you know, Advent's great, but it's, it's no epiphany. Uh, <laughs> the, the, you know, you, to be a good pastor, you just need something that sounds clever and pithy. So I love that in epiphany, you can just say, 
uh, Christmas was the gift, but Epiphany is the unwrapping of the gift. And everyone says, wow. <laughs> profound. <Yep. laughs> Instead of going, Advent's from the Latin. And right. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is maybe an underappreciated gift, just the, the seasons and something I've grown in my appreciation of over the years. I had a, a church member in California who grew up in kind of an evangelical Protestant background and... Um, he was, uh, I think, teaching our teen class, and I, think, I remember he came to me one day and say, saying, "Look at look at this stuff about the like the colors of the church here. Can I do a class on this? This is so cool." <laughs> and I was like, uh, "Sure, you yeah. know that's yeah something maybe we're kind of used to growing up in that environment, but it is uh, yeah it's just uh, it's a cool thing once you start kind of unpacking the different emphases of the seasons. Um, there's a lot a lot in there, yeah, and the flow of of a of a year that okay." And we, people maybe that didn't grow up with it, then come into it. Go okay. There's a certain feeling I think for for us who grew up maybe in the Lutheran church that it's Lent and it follows you throughout the week, not just on Sunday or Wednesday. Um, it's it's Christmas season, and and we talked about this last night, Tyler, about just some of these holidays that then core still correspond with our secular calendar where everything stops like Christmas, every, everything just stops for at least a day. Um, and if you can have more of that feel in the, in the church season, the better we are just as human beings that we can sit and contemplate things, anything at all. Yeah. We, we were talking last night about, uh, with Salt Lake city had a snow day this week, which is the first time in like 20 or 25 years or something that there's been enough snow for a snow day. And we, so we were talking about how, fun that is to just have nothing for that day just to stop like life is on pause and i was telling him i i've always loved that about like christmas part of you know something somewhere in there part of the appeal is that the world does in a sense stop you gotta i mean doctors and nurses gotta work but i so i was telling mike that i was driving home from somewhere on christmas eve and i saw some guys in the car next to me i thought i bet they're happy to go home and tonight tomorrow they don't have to work this is just great nobody has to work and i turned the corner and realized Oh wait, I have to work tonight and tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a different feel for a pastor. And now that I'm not in a pastorate, it is. Um, I'll admit, Saturday night's a little bit more relaxed than it was when I had to do something the next morning. Um, but uh, I do miss that a little bit. There was a there was a little bit more sense of purpose, and and I'll tell you, I I as a parishioner, it's I'm not following. Um, the church year like I did. And I almost had to force myself to do that. And it's, it's hard for the pastor to, you don't want to constantly harp. It's the epiphany season. It's epiphany season, but it's important. And, and I'm not in that. In fact, I, you know, we'll preach maybe, you know, every five weeks or whatever. And every single time I preach, I have to call a pastor and say, what pericope year mm. are we in? <laughs> I mean, I have no idea. You know, I got to look this up. I totally lost from that. And it's kind of sad. It is kind of sad. And so uh, pastors out there, I know maybe some people kind of roll your eyes when you constantly are saying this is the season and and, uh, it's just important. And I think uh, it's valuable. On the other side now, it's it's something that I've lost and I'm sad for it. Um. Can I share something, Mike, from some notes sure. that I had? Because I think this kind of relates to what you were talking about in living in time. And John was saying, uh, talking about a, a friend from Protestant tradition who was looking in 
uh, happily at the church here. So this guy, I, I just had notes from a book I had read a few years ago. I, I grabbed these notes because I thought you would probably ask some things about lectionary today, um, since that was part of my hymnal committee stuff. He, his name's Fritz West, and he writes a book called um, Scripture and Memory, and he, um, a big part of it is kind of reviewing the work of Vatican II and the three-year lectionary. And uh, so he says that we there are different frameworks uh, or memories in which we hold our um, salvation story. And he, he makes the case, and I think there, that I get it, uh, that the liturg- more liturgical traditions like the Anglicans, Lutherans, Roman Catholics have a a hermeneutic that that, that this, you know is Christocentric, and so um, he calls their system of of or their framework um, the cal- calendric narrative. So he says they view everything through the festivals of the church. The whole year is built on the life of Christ and the teachings of Christ. So. Um, a note here I have here says gospel selections are central to the lectionary, right? That, and we talk that way. The gospel is the thing that sets the day or whatever um, because of Christological. And I guess we say that because we're people of the New Covenant, New Testament. Um, he says then there's a Protestant tradition that is more theocentric. Um, so Calvary Chapel down the road here, for example, starts at the front of the Bible and just reads through um, the entire scriptures and they, they wouldn't say, well, what the gospel sets the, you know, the tone for the day where the selections are all circling around it. So he calls that the canonical narrative. So if we're sort of built around the life and teachings of Christ, they're built around, uh, or their, their framework their, to hold the memory of salvation is the scriptures, which I, th- I think works. I mean, um, our whole tradition has to do with this thing we've just been kind of delighting in, um, a rehearsal of christ at the center right story i mean just going from literally let's go through the story of christ um uh you know chronologically instead of yeah starting in genesis i kind of teach our teach my students that way and and ask them the question are you a first article christian or a second article christian and you can't say both right and to point that out that isn't more about the sovereignty of god is it more about your plan his plan for you is it more about um you know God the Father, or do you understand that you only know God the Father through Christ, and this is how you know God? Um, it, there, there is a subtle difference there, but actually a quite profound one. And even, even to start saying, don't, don't, I kind of draw a circle on the board and put a cross in the middle, and I say everybody's Christocentric or claims to be Christocentric, and what they mean is there's the cross in the middle, Jesus in the middle, and then they dance around the outside. (laughs) Like Jesus is my source of power or he's my, he's my everything, you know, like you're writing him a Hallmark card or whatever. And then I draw, um, a cross and then kind of like almost a spiral pulling you into the cross. Like he's a centripetal force that pulls you in and he makes you a part of the story. Starting at baptism, you're going to die, rise with me, Daily, you're going to do that as you, um, you know, take off the old flesh and put on the new flesh and then live out your vocations, carrying, bearing a cross and stuff like that. It's more him pulling you into this, encountering you instead of saying, okay, there's a God out there. He's written some stuff. 
there's some rules here. Yes, it's my hope and he's got a plan for me, but it's really me centric in the end instead of literally everything is my cross. This is where I die with him. This is where I'm resurrected with him. And as I go out into the world, really he's using me as a mask and I'm a coworker with him to carry out his love for other people. And then seeing all the other people that he is using to love me back, right? It's much more about Christ, love, stuff like that. So, I, And I never thought about that in the prickable systems, but that really makes sense. Well, I th- yeah, I think so. I think what it caught me is if, you, if, if next week you went to church, um, we're, in, we're in, I don't know when these things get put out on, uh, for people to hear, but this is February, right? If next week you went to church and heard the Pentecost account, you would say, what's, what's wrong? I mean, we, we're, we hear scripture in the, in the context of the church year in some way. Yeah. Got anything to add? Got anything to add, Pastor Mitchell? No, I, I think that's right. I mean, it's a, it's a good point that we view things, uh, we view things uh, in a Christocentric way and that the calendar revolves around that. Um, yeah, it is. We talk about God's plan for my life. We would say, well, God's plan for my life is he has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, so that I may live with him and for him. Um, that that above all, that's God's plan for my life. It's centered in Christ. Um, not so much, you know, where, where should I live? What job should I take? Uh, what's he got in mind for me? We would say, well, in Christ, a lot of those things are free, you know, mm-hmm. we, and God, we make choices and, and God will bless those choices in one way or the other. But, uh, yeah, his plan for my life, essentially, we would say it, it's, it's right there in Christ above all. Yeah. And it's not, it's not like one is worse and one is, is, um, better. Well, maybe, but it's more of an emphasis, right? Is the emphasis on Christ already done. Like his plan for you is already done. <laughs> like in, not only in salvation, but also, you know, I created good works for you to in advance for you to accomplish and just what a privilege it is to let go. And then all those things that are free to us, we don't have to worry about, right? Instead of we can have the idea of God's plan for me can become a burdensome thing. Like I'm trying to figure out what does he want me to do instead of, um, being free from that and saying, well, it's right in front of you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's such a great plan that just don't even worry about it kind of thing. But that's more of a pastoral question, I suppose. So um, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk uh, about these things. And we'll ask uh, each of these uh, two men to describe their role on the hymnal committee for the new hymnal that's coming out in the Wisconsin Synod shortly. And then maybe just kind of the nuts and bolts, like how did how do you figure out how which hymns to put in how do you figure out what is the the right for sunday holy communion and for baptism that kind of stuff so we'll be back in a second to discuss that with uh, pastor peel and pastor mitchell topic and we're going to discuss um, hymnal projects and so Tyler we'll start with you and why don't you just tell us 
basically um, what committee you're on and explain that committee and then we'll go to John and then maybe we'll come back to you Tyler and give some cool things that you had to were forced to think about as you were making decisions for the new hymnal. Yeah, sounds good. I'm going to let John um, tell you about the different committees there are and those kind of things. He's on the executive committee, and so um, plus he just knows more than me anyway, so uh, he'll get that all right. I'm on the scripture committee, uh, which is chaired by John Schrader, uh, seven of us on that committee, and um, probably the the hugest responsibility for us was a review and revision of the three-year lectionary, and um, and we did some work with the one-year lectionary as well. So maybe we should explain that a little bit. What pericope lectionary? What do those terms mean? Sure. So the you know the the liturgy is fundamentally built on the proclamation of Christ and his his presence among us, that mystery, and that happens um, through the Word of God. The um, Western Rite has a place for three lessons traditionally and Sunday morning. And um, so you got to figure out what those lessons will be. There's a long history to that in the church. Um, but we, when I say three-year lectionary, we took what was handed down to us from really the kind of the 1960s with Vatican II and then to a, a group called the Inter-Lutheran uh, Lutheran Commission on Worship that produced a kind of Lutheranized version of a three-year lectionary. So your A, your B, your C, um, three lessons on every Sunday, most often an Old Testament lesson, and then a, an epistle lesson and a gospel lesson. Sometimes um, in the season of Easter, there is a lesson from Acts instead of an Old Testament epistle. So, um, yeah, did that answer the question? Yeah, so you're, you're helping to choose. Each hymnal is going to have its own... Uh, assigned readings for each day, like Christmas and the Sunday after Christmas. So you're helping to say, okay, we're going to keep these, we're going to change these, or, um, well, just choosing those texts, basically. Yeah, yeah, what you're going to hear next Sunday, I mean, on a on a schedule. And with some other things, I mean, you had to deal with uh, creeds and some other kind of actually thorny issues with texts and stuff like that. So what else was under the, um, the Scripture Committee? Right, so... Um translations or or texts to use for um, the Lord's Prayer for example which which translation uh, yeah the Creed um, as well we uh, have worked through prayers of the day and done doctrinal doctrinal reviews as a scripture committee um, on new hymns that would be proposed to be in the hymnal um, and some of the other Things are well. We're working on a commentary on the propers. The propers being those those lessons that are appointed um, for a Sunday, um, that, and so a commentary on that would be something helpful to a preacher talking about how that Sunday fits into the that spot in the church year and how those lessons and the um, you know prayers of the day and the psalms and the other things that are appointed for that day fit together toward a theme. Um, so that was another big thing. Then is uh, appointing psalms that would match so the committee had quite a bit of quite a bit of where i mean all the committees had quite a bit of uh, a corpus to work through whether it be like the psalms committee's got to work through all the psalms but really you had quite a bit of of material and 
for your committee. So, uh, John, why don't you uh, tell us about what, why don't you do this? Why don't you tell us what the, all the committees are, and then you can focus on, on your committee, the rights committee, and uh, just tell us uh, what things you have to deal with. So the uh, whole hymnal project is divided up into several committees, um, kind of the primary committees that deal with the content of the hymnal would be the uh, hymnody committee. So they're dealing with the actual hymns in the, in the book, um, the rights committee, the committee I work with, which deals with liturgy orders of service, the psalmody committee, um, which works with psalm settings, um, and then the scripture committee too, as Tyler was describing. Um, and then in addition to those committees, we have had a communications committee um, that just deals with, you know, getting the word out, communicating about the project, uh, coordinating articles, blog posts, things like that, surveys that have gone out um, and processing the data that comes back. And also a technology committee. That's one that probably hymnal projects in the past in our church body have not had before, but that's a major component of this project. Um, part of it is just working with technology to actually do the work uh, that, that the committees are involved with, and we're trying to make use of a lot of technology doing that, whether it's you know online discussion groups or uh, video conferencing so we can have meetings and, and don't have to get together in person all the time. But then also looking forward to... Um, the uh, parts of the, the project that will be new to our church body, like we're, the technology committee is working on basically a website that uh, you'd subscribe to where all the content is found in digital form from the whole project. And there are worship planning tools and um, all kinds of other cool stuff. Um, so they're working with things like that as well. So, uh, and then the, one other committee, it started out as the literature committee. It's kind of morphed into more the, each individual book is is being worked on on its own. Um, but the other books that go along with a hymnal project. So right now the plan is to have um, a pastor's manual that goes along with the hymnal, um, a book called a parish source book, which is more for um, members of congregations who are interested in worship uh, matters that would kind of go through and explain some things and um, a musician's guide. Um, and also uh, Mark Paustian is working on a book of devotions uh, related to worship too. So those are kind of uh, used to be the literature literature committee. Now it's sort of each one of those has its own editor and, and uh, is being worked on. So those are kind of the main facets of the project. Um, First of all, I don't know why the communications committee hasn't contacted the podcast, but whatever. I'm not going to do that. Sour grapes. No. Uh, w what about design? Is is that the technology? Like, what is you know the the you know the layout and the the cover art and stuff like that? Does that fall under technology, or is there another committee for that? Yeah, that's technology committee. Okay. So they're working with design matters. Yeah, I mean everything from you know, which font and what is the font size and a, and a hymn layout. And they have been working hard on setting up templates for pretty much all of the, the printed material. And they're working with, you know, graphic designers and things like that for artwork. So, right, the technology committee is overseeing that. And and those are actually not easy conversations, I'm sure. You know, you'd think, well, I'll just pick a font. Well, <laughs> not really, uh, especially if you need to uh, um, sell this stuff, kind of stuff. And then tell us about the executive committee, and then maybe you could circle around back to the rights committee, which you serve at. 
Sure. The executive committee is made up of the different committee chairs, and then there's a few at-large members, um, and uh, Mike Schultz, the project director. Um, so I think there are 13 of us on the executive committee, and basically uh, things, final decisions come up to the, the executive committee um, and uh, for approval, or sometimes things are recommitted back to a committee for further study and further work. But uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the decision-making body um, for the project. And then the executive committee also works with um, Northwestern Publishing House, who is kind of funding and publishing the project too. So that's been an a fa a aspect of the project I never really thought about before becoming involved with it. But um, yeah, NPH has, uh, this is their product uh, in a lot of ways. So they uh, working with them and trying to work out um, plans with them has been another aspect of it. Yeah, I suppose you need to sell these books, right? That's kind right, of an right, issue yeah. <laughs> that um, probably with our heads in the clouds, pastors are looking more for the quality and what they want and don't really think about all those mm -hmm. kinds of things. Yeah, that was always a question. Is it a project or a product that we're yeah. working on? Right. Probably both, yep. I suppose. So the rights committee, um, I'm guessing funerals, weddings, baptisms, but then also... Right the daily office, but then of course the, the main services on Sunday. So tell us a little bit about how you, uh, just maybe the bare bones right now, and then we'll circle back on some, maybe the more content stuff of, but, uh, what, what do you guys deal with? Yeah, we are, uh, responsible for the rights committee, uh, pretty much the front of the hymnal, except for the Psalms. Um, Psalmody has its own committee. Um, but yeah, our committee is responsible for the main orders of service. You mentioned the daily office, so matins, vespers, uh, services like that. Um, wedding, funeral, baptism, some of those often used rites. Uh, and then things like daily devotions and prayer resources uh, also. Um, and then there are some things that are going to be... Um, probably digital only, um, you know, maybe some alternate orders of service, things like that, or extra prayer resources that might not be printed in the hymnal itself, but will be available digitally. So we're working on those things also. So, and not just, of course, the text of, let's say, the glory and excelsis, but the settings, the tunes, I mean, right. you're heavily involved and in not just in those texts with those music. So Tyler, tell us, um, you know, uh, what was... What did you learn? What was stuck out with you? What was why is your committee so important? Anywhere you want to go when it comes to the the scriptural text committee? Sure, I can. I was thinking to tell you just kind of how, um, as I think back, how things have, or where we started, and, and what's kind of been the progression. We, I, I one of the things I learned is um, committees have to fight for pages in a hymnal. You know how, what can get in, included and what doesn't. Uh, the the scripture committee was. I think the one responsible for getting a uh, small catechism printed, for example, on the first few pages of the hymnal, unless something changed. Hopefully not, John. I don't know where it'll be okay. printed, but right. I remember advocating that too, yeah. I was glad to hear John say that the executive committee sometimes approves things. I thought they automatically just recommitted everything. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe for some committees, yeah. <laughs> um, so we, you know... Um, we recognized that this lectionary thing would be a huge task, and we, the group of guys, had a have a, have a huge respect for tradition and for the, you know, Catholicity, universal nature of the church, and wanted to stick, you know, didn't didn't want to reinvent the wheel, and at the same time, um, and maybe especially in our research, we realized 
that electionary hasn't yet dropped right out of God's lap. Um, these are this is something that changes through the generations of the church, and maybe in some small way we could do something with it. Our rubric was really a broad review of the lectionary, but minor um, revisions. So, um, you know, for years we would uh, meet a few times a year um, and work through these things. Uh, the lectionary, we were divided into subcommittees of year A, year B, year C, but then we would come, you know, as a, back to a plenary group and uh, work through every Sunday, um, every lesson. Where did the lesson begin? Where did it end? Is there a lacuna... Um, a space in the middle where you skip some verses or not. Um, yeah, and so um, then we went on to farm it out, some people field testing and came back and uh, probably went through four or five more revisions before um, just last year we finally, I think, got approved a, a, a Lutheran lectionary, as we've been calling it. Um, none of that, yeah. So I said we were looking for minor revisions. Um, one of the thing, Christian worship, the the hymnal that we have had in our pews now for a generation, was the kind of uh, where we started our default position, and then the, the column right next to it was um, Lutheran service book from the LCMS. Just in the last. Uh, you know, 15 years or maybe 20 years, there's been a tremendous amount of very scholarly work that was done on that project. We were privy to some of the um, inside information on that, so we used those kind of things. I will say the the big thing for us in the Wisconsin Synod was a cry for thematic kind of Sundays. Um, Rather than like a lectua continua? Maybe you could explain that just yeah, a little bit. Yeah, right. So... Um, there's long precedent in the, in the history of the church um, of of reading from a particular book of the Bible and stopping somewhere, and then the next time the, the assembly comes together, you start reading where you left off, and, and you work your way through a book, and the book is kind of speak for itself in that way. So there's carryover of that um, in the in the lectionaries that came together in the 1960s, in three-year I'm thinking of specifically. Uh but it doesn't necessarily closely, which the, let's say we're reading through the book of First Corinthians um, and the gospel lesson is uh, Jesus walking on water. That, that First Corinthians text might not necessarily closely tie to um, the gospel lesson. There's, there's, I mean, in scripture as a whole, and so there's always connections but it wasn't intended necessarily to highlight that gospel theme when it's a, a continuous lectionary. Um, so, I mean, without getting bogged down in why necessarily, the, the cry had been, for, especially from preachers and um, our synod, to help the hearers and the preachers to see kind of a golden thread that's running through a Sunday. So, I mean, I mean if... Uh, Pastors who have preached through the three-year have had this experience, maybe especially in July or something like that, where they they read a, a, a epistle text and say, man, that would have been a great one for last week when it matched up with that gospel. So we weren't afraid in this group to then take that and move it um, there. And so we, we were very careful to stay with the gospels that are in line with the you know, the gospel texts um, in line with the rest of Christendom for the most part. Uh, and with our close neighbors, the Missouri Synod. Um, so 
um, however, in the the first lessons or the Old Testament lessons, the epistle lessons, they tried to retain the, the great important texts that are there, but a lot of them got moved around, and I think um, it's going to be helpful for people in the pew. It's something we're, I think, pretty proud of after all of the review and input um, to put Florida as our little contribution to the church in this corner of the world for now. Talk, talk about like, uh, you know, maybe the creed and, and the language of the creed, um, maybe in Lord's Prayer, without going into too much detail and um, um, making things controversial or whatever, but um, just how would you go about that? And I think a lot of people would be like, why don't you just keep the creed? What's the big deal? Why are you, why are you um, suffering through all of this just to to get to argue about one word in a creed or something like that? Yeah, well, of course, the creeds are about arguing about uh, words, right? They they were formed in defense of the faith and very carefully stated um, in order to honor what God has revealed to us and to, to stick with that. Um, so that's a big deal. That was a big deal to our committee to make sure, you know, to, to never assume, to revisit um, that this is faithful to and especially it became, I mean, we wouldn't, no one is suggesting it was in any way unfaithful, and I don't think it's changing. Um, but in the years that our last hymnal came out, um, there was a group, it, the name changed in the 1980s, but it was, I think, by, by the early 90s, the ELLC, English Language Liturgical Consultation, and they had come, well, all kinds of denominations all around the world come together to standardize some texts, so the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, etc. Um, for the blessing of the being, you know, being ecumenical in, in good ways, we adopted a version of the Nicene Creed for our 1993 hymnal, Christian Worship, uh, that the this consultation had put out, and it was expected to be the, the version of the Creed, the translation of the Creed that the, the English-speaking world would use. It just happened that by the time we went to print, they had changed some wording, and it really never did catch on across Christendom in the English language. So, and could you put the Lord's Prayer into that same category as well, or is that a different? No, that's well because the, I don't have like we went from church to church to school to school, um, bounced around that I I have my own version of the Lord's Prayer, and it's somewhere between the the contemporary and the, and the old one. And, yeah. uh, I mean, I'll have matins in the morning where we use, uh, the old version. And then for chapel, we use a new one. And I don't know what I'm, I have to, I literally have to look at the piece of paper because otherwise I'm not going to be in unison. So, right. um, it, it, if it's not the same exact history, but that's kind of what we're talking about here, right? We, somebody wanted to standardize, update the language and it never really caught on as well as they thought it might. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it is. And in in really the version of the, the more contemporary version with Lord's Prayer we have didn't exactly match up with what was in print anyway or going to be the standard version. Um yeah, I right, I don't want to bemoan it. I I have said I I wish in 1993 they would have picked one of the columns left or right. But then um in 2018 I'm staring at it. We recognize that there are now generations of people that have grown up speaking the what, uh, contemporary version, if that's what we call it, the newer yeah, version. Yeah, so just maybe to fill in in, in our, our our hymnal, and probably a lot of hymnals, there's 
if you would say the Lord's Prayer, there's two versions in two columns, and you just you know you start saying one, and then you catch on if you're a visitor. You know each church is going to use each one. So um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So um, could, I, could I interject yep, something right. there? We uh, early on in the hymnal project, you know, they did some survey work and asked people, you know, uh, their viewpoints on different things and. I think the vast majority of people who commented on the Lord's Prayer said, please pick one version, vast majority. But then when you ask the next (laughs) question, okay, which one, then things kind of split down the middle. Or I think there's maybe more people favor the traditional version than the contemporary version, but, um, but that was tough because, yeah, some people have, when the 93 hymnal came out, they started using the new version and they've gotten used to that. And I think there are probably a lot of kids or a lot of people who just grew up with that. Um, there are people who never stopped using the traditional version. And we also heard from like mission churches, um, that, uh, you'd think with a brand new mission and people who don't have a strong church background, they might like the contemporary version cause it's more modern English. But then you hear, well, if people know anything from the Bible, yeah. it's probably the Lord's Prayer and it's probably the traditional wording. Right. It's just kind of part of the English language. So so that's why we're still working with two two versions. Yeah. I think I saw somewhere um, some sort of survey that suggested maybe more than 60% of our Wisconsin Synod congregations are still using the, what we'd call the traditional right. version. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, to, to, to figure those things out sensitively and... Um, yeah, it's, it's creed and Lord's Prayer, staple of faith kind of things that you want to be right, but you don't want to tinker with unless it's necessary. If it ain't broke, don't fix it kind of thing. So, And you're messing with people's faith. When you, you start messing around, you can do a lot of things and people, okay, you know, that's just pastor or that's just the way it is or whatever. But you start messing with some of those texts. Um, that's when people start getting, and I think in some cases, rightfully so. I mean, these words matter to them. They're tattooed on their hearts. And when you change Luke chapter two, or you change the Lord's prayer or the creed in a lot of ways, they're rightly, the question comes up, are you changing what I'm supposed to believe? Because those things are not so separate and you're right. You have to be sensitive to that. But, um, at the same time, we can't be doing these and thou's for the, (laughs) (laughs) when language has changed. Yeah, so maybe any other, any other things from the lectionary or the, the creed or any of those discussions that you had? Maybe uh, maybe, maybe this, if you don't have anything else. Uh, yeah. You know, what, what the average person who's listening to this, the, the average layman who's not, who's like, pericope what? Sure. Um, what, what, what? What great thing did, did you gain from this that you're like, this is a really cool thing that's been handed down to us, and, and I feel like I'm a steward handing this down to the next generation. I'm, I'm sure many times, especially dealing with the creed, um, that you felt in awe about your place in history, as small as it may be, handing down something that's so sacred and so big and so old and so epic, really. Um, you know, to the average layman, what advice would you give them to appreciate the pericope of the creeds or anything that your committee dealt with? Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think I just agree with I agree with all of what you've said. This is this is massive, and it's this choice between good and good always, which is the tough part of being a lectionary committee. I realize it's like going to the buffet, and all the food is fantastic. What do you pick? We tried very hard with you know, and we explored 
all the contemporary liturgies we could find out there and tried to go back to this as far back we could go um, and tried to do this. What, I, what I've said is that there, there's a thematic kind of approach where that Sunday, um, it might not immediately jump off the page to you, but you should be able to recognize a thread that, a, a way that this, this Old Testament is, is a type or, or pointing ahead in some way to that gospel lesson that's coming. And, um, well, let me just give you a, a concrete example. Um, if you were to go to our, be at our church this Sunday, you would hear Isaiah 6, the vision of God, um, and, the, and the doorposts are shaking, and Isaiah says, woe, woe is me, and the coal touches his lips, and um, Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. And then I, at the end of this, uh, is, when Isaiah's fear is melted away, he, he stands there and says, here am I, send me. Then um, we would come against Romans chapter 10, which is uh, an addition to this in this lectionary. Who, how can they hear unless someone is sent to them? And then it's Jesus um, with Peter, put the nets out in the deep water. They get more fish than they can handle. And Jesus says, uh, Peter, like Isaiah, says, I'm, I'm, go away from me, Lord. I'm, I'm sinful man. But Jesus doesn't go away. And he instead calls Peter to be his um, fisher of men. So can you, I mean, if you're, if you're sitting in a pew to, to listen to those and think about um, the connections, also very often, I, I mean, many pastors I know put a theme in a bulletin on the weekend uh, that, that Sunday or, or a paragraph describing it to watch for those things. So, so you might say this weekend the Lord calls and sends messengers out so that his word. Yeah, and you, you mentioned, you know, just the, the fact that we have this church year season is Christocentric, you know, it's not, it's not theocentric. Um, but so is the, the thematic um, pericope and the fact that the gospels last. Like it's all connected to the gospel, which means it's all connected to Christ. And to think of the Old Testament as, uh, you know, pointing ahead to Christ and then the, the epistles as commentary on Christ. And it's, there, there's, a, there's a very natural flow there that here's the gospel and, and why it's kind of cool that we stand up for the gospel reading and not the other readings and just those little things that say, here's the fulfillment of everything. So good. Um, Pastor Mitchell, um, why don't you give us whatever you want on the rights committee? Uh, before I do, I forgot one committee that has kind of formed in the course of the project. Um, originally, we were our committee was going to be responsible for uh, what we know now as Christian worship occasional services, and that has a lot of the smaller rights for, you know, installation of a Christian teacher at a Lutheran school or, um, you know, some of the the less often used rights um, throughout the year that come up on occasion. That has its own committee now, so the uh, group has been working on that. I think they'll call that book The Agenda, which is kind of the old word for it. Um, but they've been working as well. Yeah, the Rights Committee, it's been fascinating. Um, one thing we found out early on is that, um, and granted, we can probably think of some churches who, uh, you know, they write their own services. Um, they don't use the liturgy. But in our church body, um, most do use some form of uh, the, the Western Rite, the, the classic liturgy of Western Christianity. And so we learned that early on. And uh, found out that people were using the services in our current hymnal. And so we said, well, let's not, you know, uh, let's not reinvent the wheel or try to start over. <clears throat> let's make use of these 
time-tested services that are uh, used and appreciated throughout our church body. Um, so we started at first kind of uh, looking at modifications to current services that were there, but we kind of ran into some obstacles. You know, if you change a little bit, why not make bigger changes or some of the services maybe in our current hymnal, like the service of word and sacrament, if people are familiar with that, maybe that was not intended to be uh, a service that lasts generation after generation. So, so we decided at some point to go back kind of and study the Western Rite itself um, prior to our hymnal and look at each part of the historic service and, and then do, I think, what I think um, Christians have done in ages before this, including in, in the Lutheran Church, and that is to say we are using the basic historic Christian worship service but we are putting forth kind of an adaptation for our own place and time. Um, so that's what we've been working on the last several years um, with the main orders of service, the main communion service. And then, as you mentioned before, we also started looking into musical settings of those services and um, reviewed probably our committee or different subcommittees looked at probably around 70 different musical settings, um, some brand new, some existing, um, and and tried to uh, highlight some that we believe would be uh, usable by the vast majority of our uh, the people in our church body that would be, um, yeah, just good, solid settings for most people to use, most congregations to find beneficial. So we worked, uh, worked on those. Um, yeah, and then we've worked on things like modifying the the daily office, the matins, vespers service. I think we'll be printing a version of prayer at the close of day, so Compline, the later evening office. Um, daily devotions, which uh, we are proposing daily devotions that kind of take their cue from those services of the daily office. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, just this past week we were working on the baptism rites that will be in the front of the hymnal, too. So, uh, yeah, it's been a long journey and part of a big part of it has been, how do we do this? You know, where do, where do you start? What, what do we need to prioritize? Uh, what should the process be? Um, and then trying to just figure out a, a, a workflow for the, the different rights and, and tasks that we've got in front of us. So it's been definitely a, a learning experience. So I'll ask you the same question I asked it, asked Tyler, um, you know, carrying this weight, um, um, what kind of, maybe you can even give an example of something that you said, wow, this is something I never appreciated before, um, that this, this part of the liturgy isn't this, you know, at this, um, part in the service at this time in the service. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, something that you could then share with your, your, the members of your congregation to say, stop and think why we're singing the Kyrie at this point in the service or something like that. I mean, maybe you could just talk about carrying that weight and, and seeing all the great things in the, the past and then mm -hmm. the stewardship that you carried out. Uh, maybe just one thought before I turn it over to you. I, when I teach, I teach worship at our college and I'll put on, I'll put up on the board, a big, uh, beautiful picture of a crucifixion scene from from the renaissance and there's a beautiful painting and the 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 western rite is the story of christ told in poetry and prose and uh, it's a beautiful painting and um you wouldn't come up to this painting into in a in a um museum and uh 
put some white primer on it and start over. Um, but what the cool thing about it is you get a brush stroke. You only get a brush stroke each time and generation gets a brush stroke their own, you know, their own little whatever. But to be truly open minded and diverse is to it's not just to paint over everything for your specific time is too narrow. And so I would imagine that both of you guys felt that way that, you know, what a privilege it is to put our our, our little um, uh, paint brush strokes onto this beautiful uh, painting. But uh, with the humility to say, um, we're not going to we're not going to we're not going to um, whitewash the whole thing and, and make it our own. Right. I think, yeah, once you start studying the background of, of the services Christians have used for generation upon generation, yeah, it does put things in perspective. We are not the first people to gather together to hear the word, uh, receive the sacrament, offer our prayer and praise. We are just a tiny little slice uh, through the continuum of, of history. Um, so yeah, it, it is uh, a humbling thing um, to, to gain that perspective and operate in within it. So um, yeah, I think we've, we've tried to do that. Um, at the same time, we've looked at our church body and, and said, what would best serve the people who are in our pews or the, the guests that are coming to our services, some with a church background, increasingly without uh, that background, um, what would serve them well? Um, and we haven't been afraid maybe to say, well, let's, let's offer our adaptation, our brushstroke um, that we think will be beneficial to the current generation too. Um, so, uh, yeah, you mentioned the Kyrie before, um, that's when we debated quite a bit because, uh, the Kyrie is that means Lord have mercy, uh, prayer near the beginning of the service has been there for a long time. Um, since Kyrie is Greek, not Latin, it kind of clues you into the fact that it comes from more the Eastern church, the, the Greek church rather than the Roman church. But it came into the Roman Rite pretty pretty early on. Um, yeah, what is the function of praying, Lord, have mercy, early in the service? We debated that quite a bit. Um, the historic uh, function of that prayer was kind of the first prayer of the service and sort of approaching God with a humble attitude. Um, we're going to ask for a whole bunch of blessings, but we're not saying we're entitled to any of these. Rather, we are calling upon the mercy of God uh, to see what we need and grant us the things that we need. Um, but Lord have mercy, probably because of, of verses like, you know, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, in your unfailing love, uh, forgive me. Um, Lord have mercy has also become a confessional prayer too. And it kind of became more of that in our current hymnal. Um, and you see that at different uh, traditions uh, different denominations too. So we kind of had to decide, well, which is it? Is Lord have mercy a prayer asking God for forgiveness or does a prayer asking God for blessings? There's no wrong right or wrong answer to that. It could be used fittingly in both ways. We ended up kind of going in the, we think the more historic direction of it's a prayer that we pray after receiving God's gift of forgiveness. And we make requests for us and for people around the world based on his mercy. So that's one one example of we delved into this, studied it. We said there are a couple ways we could go. There's there's not a right way or a wrong way, but we believe this is a a beneficial way to think about the Kyrie, and so we're putting that forward for for people's use. 
Oh, I'm glad you chose the right way. <laughs> You're very diplomatic there. Um, um, no, uh, very good. I mean, we're, we're sort of at the end here right now. I wish we could talk more about this. And we purposely, we're, we're not going to get into details, just, you know, uh, more things were not necessarily controversial, but there's opinions on both sides. Plus, uh, nothing's been finished. And uh, quite frankly, you're going to have to buy the book to find out what is in it. So we weren't going to give we weren't going to give away. Um, We're just trying to tease this so that uh, we don't give away everything. So, uh, and we hope that uh, uh, people that are interested in liturgy um, that will will look into the product that's going to come out. But of course, our own Wisconsin Synod people that uh, I think all three. I'll speak for all three of us that the that the hymnal just wouldn't be something in the pew, but you would have one at home. And, uh, and make use of it as well. And uh, so buy one for your own family too. Buy one for your church and for your family. Um, until it comes out though, however, in our freedom, we're just going to have to... Let the bird fly. Uh, every evening when the sun goes down Get up my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. I set him up another round. One more round won't get me down. Don't care what